Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. Man is an unoriginal animal. The English murderer who disposed of his wives in succession by drowning them in their baths was a case in point. Had he varied his methods, he might have escaped detection to this day, but he obeyed the common dictates of human nature, arguing that what had once succeeded would succeed again, and he paid the penalty of his lack of originality. And the point of all of this? That when you have two crimes precisely similar in design and execution, you find the same brain behind them both. I'm looking for that brain, Monsieur Joe, and I shall find it. You just heard Alfred Molina as Inspector Poirot in the new L.A. Theatre Works production of Agatha Christie's The Murder on the Links. I'm going to keep this intro short because Alfred Molina is such a delightful raconteur, I'll let him do most of the talking. But I will say by way of introduction that the man is a chameleon. With amazing versatility in the characters he plays, from Diego Rivera to Tevia and Fiddler, from Detective Morales in Law and Order L.A. to Dr. Octopus in Spider-Man. And he's equally versatile across genres, on stage, in film and television, with the Tony, BAFTA, Oscar, and Emmy nominations to prove it. Not to mention that Alfred Molina is very much at home in a recording booth, with 40-some-odd audiobooks to his credit, including the Chopin Manuscript, which won Audiobook of the Year in 2008. I had the opportunity to speak with Alfred Molina in late summer, during the week he was getting married, no less, and began by asking him, given the range of genres and characters he moves through, how he chooses the projects he takes on. Well, I wish I could tell you that this was the result of some fantastic game plan that I concocted when I was a young man or anything like that. But the truth is, I basically said yes to everything. And I went, you know, from when I started acting professionally, when, you know, in my, when I was, what, 19, 20, my, my big priority was always to be employed, to, you know, to earn a living. And I think I got that from my parents, who were both immigrants from Southern Europe to England. And my father was a waiter and uh, a maitre d'. My mother cleaned hotel rooms and eventually became a, what we used to call a linen keeper. And uh, that was their world, and, and it was all about working, making a living, you know. And they had that typical kind of immigrant sort of notion about this is how we better ourselves and create a better life for our kids and so on. And going into a profession that was seen by so many people, including my parents, as being very kind of insecure and, and, and all that, I thought, I've got, to, I've got to work. And so any job that was offered, I said yes to. And I've been doing that all my life. And now after, you know, 45 years as a professional actor, I look back on 
what I laughingly regard as my career. And what I see is this kind of crazy quilt of all kinds of different things, you know, different, as you said, you know, different genres. There's no discernible pattern. It's, it's, it's kind of chaotic. But what it has done is it's given me a, a wonderful sort of range of stuff that I've been able to do. And also it's, it's, it let people know along the way that, oh, yeah, you know, Fred's kind of game for this. You know, Fred will be game for this, you know. And, and that's what I've always tried to do. And, and um, as I said, there was no game plan. But I like the way it's turned out because I like the fact that uh, I can go from a TV job to a little film job to a theatre play to a, you know, to a radio play or, or to, a, to read a story. This is my profession. This is my skill, you know. And uh, to be able to practice that skill in as many different ways as possible is a is is a pleasure and also I'm I'm very aware of a real privilege. You're known with your facilities, with accents and with languages. You're good not just with the accents themselves, but with the rhythms of language. What kind of preparation do you do? Well I think some of it is work on my part. Not a great deal, I have to be honest. But I think a big part of that is that I was blessed with a good ear. And I think that also comes from my parents because both my parents left school in their respective countries by the time they were about 15 or 16. You know, they had a high school education. I don't think my dad even did have that. But they both, interestingly, had fantastic facility for languages. My mother already spoke French when she came to England from a tiny village in Italy. My father had, by the time the war was over and he was had become a naturalized Briton after the war. My father already spoke his own language, Spanish. He spoke English. He also spoke a little bit of German and a little bit of Arabic, incredibly. My mother learnt Spanish from my father. She already had French. They learnt English together. So the the two of them were fluent. I mean, they didn't just have a smattering. You know, my parents were fluent in four languages, each of them. They could read and write and, and speak very fluently. And I think hearing all of that and, and hearing them speaking their own languages, speaking each other's language, teaching me how to speak Spanish and Italian, and also learning English. And they learned English. They didn't learn it formally. They didn't learn English sort of studying. They learned it by living there and working. So they learned it, in a sense, colloquially. So my parents' English was full of wonderful kind of slang and, and proverbial and colloquial language. But they had these strong accents, you know. So, so you, know, my, you know, my father would say things like, well, you know, it was incredible. You could blow me over with a feather. <laughs> he, he might get it slightly wrong. He once said... So somebody was, one of our neighbours, I can't remember exactly what the context was, but my father was like listening to this person just, talk, you know, expressing some issue that they had, some problem. And my father decided to kind of give him a little bit of advice in the way of a proverb. And he, and he got these proverbs mixed up. So he ended up saying, well, you know what they say, Steve, too many cooks, they make light work of the broth. <laughs> <laughs> There's real truth to that. And my dad, my, my dad had this way of he would say something like that and then he would like nod. He would nod very sagely, like like just to let you know that he'd really hit the nail on the head. <laughs> <laughs> they, they had a facility for it. And I think that plus living in a kind of working class neighborhood in London, in West London, it was full of immigrant families. There were um, a lot of West Indian families, you know, with all the different 
accents from, from the Caribbean. There were Portuguese families, Polish families, Irish. Uh, there were tons and tons of different languages and accents you could hear in the street. And so I think I sort of grew up in an, in an atmosphere where that was accessible. That was all there. I, along the way, I must have tried to copy them or, you know, use them. And so I, I, I wish I could say it's it's due to, you know, diligent study on my part. But I think a lot of it is just a, a, a happy set of circumstances. Well, you put that facility for accent to good work recently when you recorded an audio performance of Agatha Christie's The Murder on the Links with a full cast, and it's produced by L.A. Theatre Works. Yes. For listeners who might not know, will you explain the premise of L.A. Theatre Works? Well, it's basically bringing theatre to the airwaves. It's essentially a very sophisticated kind of radio. The plays are very often recorded in front of a live audience, particularly the comedies. You need that timing. And it's very immediate. You know, the actors are all together. It's like a performance. It's like a stage performance, except that you haven't learnt it because you're reading it. You know, one is familiar with it, of course, but, you know, you're not, you haven't memorised it. And we're all standing at microphones. So we're playing everything straight out front. So you're playing everything to the microphone. You know, in a sense, your, your colleague, your fellow actor, is the microphone. Very often with actors who haven't done a lot of radio or a lot of work like this, they want to connect with the other actor. So they'll turn to the other actor and, of course, go off mic. So you learn the convention of it. But when you've understood that, it's really just like doing a play. LA Theatre Works has brought the most extraordinary list of titles to the marketplace. And when you think there's Jane Austen, Sam Shepard, William Shakespeare, all kinds of writing, all kinds of plays, all kinds of material. You know, and I love what they do. My association with them has been long. In The Murder on the Links, you play the famous detective Poirot. Hercule Poirot, yes. Who's an icon. Mm. How do you approach a character like Poirot, who, if we know Agatha Christie, we have him in our minds? Well, I think you, first of all, not think of it in those terms, because then all, all that one would do would be in awe of it and slightly intimidated by it. My, my fiancée, when I told her I was doing it, she said, oh, is that the, uh, the David Suchet thing? <laughs> and I said, that David Suchet did a brilliant job, but he did it on TV. This is different. This is a, an audio recording. It's going to be different. And then she said, so are you going to do the Belgian accent? Well, of course I'm going to try and do the accent, but it's going to be completely different. Are you still going to do the whole thing about the little grey cells? Yes, but it's going to be completely different. <laughs> so the thing is, when you're reading such an iconic, such a well-known, such a beloved character, you do have to treat it with a certain amount of respect. You know, you can't walk in and suddenly say, I've got this great idea, I'm going to make him Irish. And, <laughs> you know, you can't do that. You know, you have to acknowledge and observe the conventions. But once once that's done, you're free to roam, you know, this landscape and, and play around with it. And, and one thing I noticed, the one thing I noticed about Poirot, you know, I watched a few episodes and I, I read a book or two of Agatha Christie, just to get the tone, you know, just to get the sense. Because one of the great things, a lot of people rather sort of dismiss Agatha Christie as, as being kind of, you know, just a, a spinner of yarns. But the truth is, her books, they get, they get under your skin. And I think it's because she's got such a great eye for detail. That's why we know these characters so well. We know, we know what they look like, we know how they sound. She does that in her books beautifully. 
So one's aware of playing a very well-known character. But I always remember what my professors at college said. They would say, you know, everyone's played Hamlet, but for the moment in time and space that you are Hamlet, you are Hamlet and Hamlet is you. <laughs> you know, and I, and I always kind of take that on board. Like, well, for this, for the next three hours today, I am Hercule Poirot. Eh bien, Captain Hastings. Now you have had two romantic liaisons with this charming young lady. First on the train from Paris, the second here. What is her name? I don't actually know. <laughs> I keep forgetting to ask. I call her Cinderella. Yet only yesterday you were mesmerized by Martha de Broy. She asked me to look her up, but of course I shan't. Cinderella, that is. You are wise. Someday, if you permit, Papa Poirot will arrange you a marriage of great suitability. <clears throat> Thank you, but the prospect leaves me cold. Oh, les Anglais. No method. Absolutely none whatsoever. <laughs> you leave all to chance. <laughs> Your Poirot is also livelier than I'm used to. Even jovial. It's the first Poirot I actually wanted to go out and have a glass of wine with. Well, that's very nice. I'm, I'm, I'm very flattered. Next time I see you, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll bring a nice bottle of Barola with me. <laughs> <laughs> I think he is a very amusing character. I mean, he is a funny man. You know, Agatha Christie's description of him, she almost describes a rather, a bit of a clown who's also a bit of a peacock. And I think that's part of the joy of him, that a lot of people that he has interactions with in the books, they don't take him seriously. I think somebody in the book at some point describes him as, oh, that rather amusing little man. You know, he's he's kind of laughed at, in a sense, by by a lot of characters. But, of course, you know, the genius is that he's, he's smarter than any of them. And uh, his own sense of his own intelligence, his own kind of capability, it, it's it's amusing. And, and I think we we felt that there was there was something to be mined there. You know, it's not it's not laugh out loud broad comedy, obviously, but there is something there that kind of insinuates itself in terms of tickling your funny bone. I found him immensely likable. Oh, I'm glad I'm glad to, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad to hear that. I'm curious, when did you first know you wanted to perform, that you wanted to be an actor? Well, um, the family history has it that I was something like nine years old when I first said the fateful words, I want to be an actor. This is what my mother told me years later. But I can't imagine that at the age of nine, I had any idea what that implied, what being an actor implied, what was involved or anything. I think I just, I, I probably just loved showing off. I mean, I was involved in school plays and stuff, but also it may well have just remained a dream because my parents didn't really take it seriously that I wanted to be an actor. You know, they kind of sort of patted me on the head and, you know, with the with the assumption that I would just grow out of it. But when I was at high school, when I, my first day at high school, or our version of high school, was the first day for a teacher, Martin Corbett, who became probably one of the most important people in my life. He'd been an actor and he was now a teacher and he joined our school and he, he was deputy head of the English department. And the first thing he did was he slightly changed the curriculum and included plays, both the reading and studying of them and the performing of them. And the idea was that we would put on plays that were part of the school curriculum. So if the kids, if the big kids were studying Taming of the Shrew, for instance, we did a production of the Taming of the Shrew. 
and so on and so forth. So I, I was doing these plays with Martin and Martin was the first adult who took me seriously when I said I wanted to be an actor. And I remember he he said, I'll help you every way I can, but the minute you drop the ball, I'm washing my hands of you. Which seems a little harsh, especially if you're talking to a kind of, you know, 12 or 13-year-old. But what it did was it absolutely galvanised me. And part of me was like, I'll show you. You, know, you don't think I'm serious. I'll show you. I'm serious. So he gave me like a reading list of plays to read, films to see if I can. And I just threw myself into it. I dived into it like like a zealot. And, of course, I, I loved it. And, and so Martin became a hugely important person in my life. He coached me when I first auditioned for the National Youth Theatre when I was 15. He coached me when I worked on my, my audition pieces, when I auditioned for drama school, you know, for college. He was a huge, huge part of my life. And we stayed after I graduated from school and I went to I went to college. We, we stayed friends. And he actually came with his partner. He came to New York to see me when I did my first play on Broadway, which was such a extraordinary thing for him to do. I was so touched by that. But there's a there's a wonderful coda to this, to this story. The night he came to see the play, it was a huge success, by the way. We, you know, we, we, we won the Tony for best play that year. And that play was called Art. That's right. All the cast were nominated for Tonys. We, we, we were riding high. So when he came to see the show, I was so excited for him to see it. He happened to come on the same night as another friend of mine from the UK. So the three of us went to have dinner after the show. And at one point, my friend Andy turned around to Martin and said, So, uh, Martin, was, um, was Fred a good actor when he was at school? And Martin said, no, he was a dreadful actor, terrible actor, but a marvellous show-off. <laughs> <laughs> well, you appeared on stage first, and then film. And your first role is in a pretty big movie in a pretty pivotal scene. That's right. You were in the first Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, and I, I couldn't believe my luck. I graduated in 75 from uh, drama school, from the Guildhall, and I worked in the theatre. I worked in the theatre exclusively. I didn't do anything else for, you know, the rest of the, that, the rest of that decade. And then around about 1980, I was on tour with Oklahoma. We were touring. We were doing the pre-West End tour. And my agent said, you know, you've got an interview for this film. Now... Steven Spielberg was already a, a star director. Harrison Ford was, over, was already a star actor. Karen Allen was, was a very prominent actress. George Lucas was involved. So this was a, already a prestigious and very sort of, you know, high-end project. I was very excited. And I went for this audition, and uh, I didn't think I'd stand a snowball's chance in hell of, of, of getting this job. But I did, and... and it was the first of many, many things. It was the first film I'd done, first time I'd worked outside of the UK, first time I flew first class. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Pan Am, Pan Am from London to LA. I was like a kid in a, in a, in a candy store. I mean, I don't know if you remember the old Pan Am planes, those big ones. They had those seats in first class with the really wide armrests and people still smoked in those days on aeroplanes. And they had like this kind of fancy ashtray on the armrest and all these buttons to recline and, and go forward. I, I think I must have spent half the trip just playing with these buttons going back. I was like a kid. 
I was so sort of, you know, thrilled by the whole thing. Pan Am even had menus for multi-course meals. That's right. They had menus. And the idea of actually being able to sit in your seat and just get the attention of the of the flight attendant and saying, you know, and, and ordering a drink, like whatever you wanted, was like unbelievable to me. And I remember, <laughs> I remember order, I asked for a beer. I said, could I have a beer? Of course, sir. The beer came and I said, how much is that? And he went, he looked at me like I was a complete idiot. And he went, oh, I think you've already paid for it, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm thinking, is this like a restaurant? Do I tip? I, 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 you know, I, I didn't know what the protocols were, so, you know, but it was kind of great. It was great. You're acting on stage, you're in film. When did you add audiobooks to your quiver? Ooh, audiobooks to my quiver. Well, I'm trying to think the first time. Many, many years ago, back in the UK, I recorded, it was either a book or a set of short stories, I can't remember, but I remember going into this booth, a little bit like this one, a small, small little solo booth. I sat down, I had the script in front of me, the engineer gave me some do's and don'ts, you know, because I'd done some radio. I knew enough already that there was that old trick of, you know, pausing, turn the page, let the paper settle before you start again. And, you know, because I remember thinking, looking at the script and thinking, oh, how convenient. The last word on every page is the end of a sentence. How convenient. <laughs> not, not thinking for a moment that somebody had been working very hard to make sure that was the case. Smarter people than me working on it. So I, I kind of got into the, the formality of it. There's something, I don't know if I can, how can I describe it? There's something rather elegant about doing voice work when you're recording a novel or a story. It's as if you have an intimate permission to kind of enter this world. In, in a sense, when you read a novel for, for, for audio, you're not becoming the writer exactly, but you're certainly the centre of the book. You know, whatever you bring to the book, whatever mood you're in, however the book hits you, you are reflecting that in the reading, in the recording. And so it becomes a very intimate thing. You're also physically close to the microphone. Very often, for effect, one might you know bring your voice down really low for something, or you might lean back and give it a bit more belt, you know, for a re you know for whatever reason, you, you know. And so it's not just reading a book; it's actually, in a sense, performing a book. And that's what I found really exciting. I've actually even recorded nonfiction, and I had the same experience. There's an intimacy to it. You you become the voice of the book somehow. I, I, I'm not describing it very well, but there's nothing between you and the audience. That's the other thing. You have a direct link with the audience. And um, uh, that's why I love it so much. I think my, my favourite thing I did was I did a whole bunch of books by Larry McMurtry, the Berry Bender Chronicles, about four books. We did that over a period of a couple of years. And that was just amazing. I mean, something like 35 different characters and, you know, different voices, different accents. It was so much fun, so much fun. Old Charbonneau, officially the party's interpreter, was a tender-hearted parent. For days he had been shaking with worry, fearful that Tasman would come out of the tent and tell him that his son was dead. Why, look, there's Pomp, old Charbonneau said tears springing to his eyes as he saw Tasman ease Pomp down on the comfortable pallet. That English girl's got more brass than all of us put together, Hugh Glass observed. I wish she liked me better. Maybe she'd take the trouble to pull me through next time I find that I'm dying. 
but Toussaint Charbonneau didn't hear him. He was stumbling up the hill, excited to see his son alive, the son he soon enfolded in a tight embrace. Careful, monsieur. He's weak, Tasman said. We don't want that wound to start bleeding. We don't. I'll be careful, Charbonneau assured her. How do you prepare? How do you prepare for a series like that with 37 different characters? Well, I read the books, although not as deeply as I did when I recorded them. I sort of read them quickly, just to get a sense of the muscularity of it, if you know what I mean. You know, there, there, there are some stories that need a punch, need a push. There are other stories that are more insinuating. They kind of creep up on you. You know, so, so you, 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 I read it beforehand to get a sense of you know, where the voice should live. And then we just sat down and, and I was very fortunate that I had a fantastic engineer who was also a little bit of a director. You know, he would stop me and say, oh, you, you missed a word here or, or you slightly, you know, you slightly flubbed on this. There's a little bit of mouth noise on this line. But you know what? You can take your time with this line. And I kind of went, yeah, he's right. And it was like doing a play. So every time in the book there was dialogue, it felt like a play. Well, you mentioned recording nonfiction, and you narrated this monumental 17-hour-long biography of Da Vinci by Walter Isaacson. Yeah, yeah. We, that was, we did that over six days. I loved that book. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. And uh, I remember saying to the engineer, so when it says um, C figure 29, do I say that? And she said, yeah, of course you do. <laughs> no. Yes, that had to have been hard. You had to keep breaking the narrative to say, see figure, see figure. I mean, you did it brilliantly, but still, that's a challenge. I realized when I looked at the book how big it was and how dense and how detailed. And it's a, bri it's a brilliant book. I think it's one of the best biographies I've ever read. I realized that the only way you're going to get through this is if you sound as enthusiastic about your subject at the end as you do at the beginning. You know, you, there's always that feeling at the beginning of the book where the voice is really kind of picking up and, you you know, everything's like fantastic. You've just sat down, you've had your coffee and you've got like 25 pages. The morning started with a wonderful sunrise. But you've got to keep that energy up, you know, by page 345, you know. <laughs> Come on, let's face it, with that book at 345, you're only halfway through the book. Exactly, exactly. So I, I suddenly thought, I've got, to, I've got to be enthusiastic. Not enthusiastic in a kind of throwaway sense, but like committed. You know, this is the most interesting thing you're going to hear today. It was that kind of thing. And, and that's, that, that's what got, got us through it. Because it was, it was dense, but I mean, so fascinating. I'm curious how you embody any character, but especially one like Poirot, when you only have your voice where we don't see the rigidity of the way you might hold yourself or the tilt of your head or a hand gesture. What adjustments do you make with your voice to compensate for the fact that we can't see you, we can only hear you? Well, I think if you're working on film or in the theatre, as you say, you've, you have your own physicality that's part of the performance. And the audience can see you as well as hear you. And so that gives them information. When you just have the voice, this is what I meant earlier on when I talked about the elegance of, uh, of audio, is that because you only have the voice, you become very aware of all the different tones, all the different cadences that you can create. 
and how you can use them to tell the emotional story and the, the you know the dramatic story. You know, when you're doing non-fiction, for example, you know you have to find a tone that's hopefully inviting and open and welcoming, but at the same time, you have to be fiercely accurate in terms of what you're talking about. You know, you can't suddenly get all kind of jolly when you're talking about a very serious or painful subject, for example. But you become aware of what your voice can do. So when you put the headphones on, you can hear yourself in a very dry, pure way. There's no other sound around you. So all you've got is your voice, and you can hear all the cracks, all the little groans, all the little breaths, all the little things that constitute your vocal quality. And you just concentrate it into making every line make sense. And it's that sort of distilling of everything down to the voice. That's what makes audio so exciting. And what makes it so compelling, I think, for the listener. Because as you're listening, you're entering into a world that you're creating, not the, not the person who's reading. I have a world in my head when I'm, when I'm recording. You know, I have a landscape in my head when I'm talking about a character walking across a field. Part of my brain is seeing that field. I can see the character. And the same thing happens when you're listening to the recording. But your field is completely different to mine. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, 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 so that distilling of the voice is really the exciting part of it. And the joy of audio, of course, is the fact that you're working in such a detailed way. You're, you're working in a very detailed way, word by word almost. And that's, that's you know, for me, that's the exciting part. And the other thing about audiobooks... And I'm curious if you have to make an adjustment for this, because unlike theater or film, which is so collaborative, it's just you in the booth. That's the beauty of it, Joe. That's that's the great thing about it. It's like, that's why that's why after after doing a play or a, or a film, I kind of I, I love the idea. That's why I'm here talking to you. I love I love this atmosphere of you know being in a booth with a microphone. I, I love it. I can see why people love radio. You know, I, I've always been a fan of radio. I, you know, I listen to radio all the time. And I did a lot of radio plays when I was in England. You know, because, as you know, there's a there's a structure in place in the cultural life of, of England, you know, where you know actors are doing plays on radio all the time. Okay, so tell me what's next for you, other than getting married this week. I'm getting, I was, you beat me to the punch. I was going I, I to burst into a touch of Lerner and Lowe. I'm getting married in the morning. I actually, I was going to I'm getting married Friday morning. <laughs> yeah, that's the big thing. I'm getting married and uh, I'm very, very excited about it. In fact, oh, I must, I, I've got to tell you a sweet little story. My fiancé, before she became a filmmaker. And we need to say your fiancé is Jennifer Lee. Yes, Jennifer Lee, yes. Who is the creator of Frozen? Yes, yes. Which has made so many little girls around the world and their parents extremely happy. Yes, thank you. Yes. So, you know, before she became a filmmaker, she was the art director at Random House Audio. This was years before we met. I did a recording of Treasure Island, which was a Random House Audio production, and she was the art director and she designed the packaging for you know she designed all the artwork for the audio release and she told me that 
while she was working on it, she had my photograph, the photograph that ended up on the um, on the back of the you know the cassette package. She had my photograph taped on her computer while she was working out you know all the graphics for for, for the design, and <laughs> in a kind of slightly sort of you know uh, self-aggrandizing or self-occupied moment, I kind of said, oh. Did did you like the recording? And she said, oh, I actually never listened to it. <laughs> and I think that is a wonderful place to leave it. Alfred Molina, thank you so much. Thank you for giving me your time. I hope you have a lovely wedding. Thank you. And a wonderful life with your bride. Thank you. That's very sweet of you. I appreciate that very much. Thank you very much. That was actor extraordinaire. Alfred Molina. The LA Theatre Works production of The Murder on the Links, starring Alfred Molina, has just been released. This has been an extended edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Audiophile Mag. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening. <laughs>